Good morning, church. As we look at Psalm 129, we are reminded that it is a psalm that reminds us that God sticks with us. That God sticks with us. Because in the journey, just like the pilgrims who were going towards Zion, towards Jerusalem to worship God, they are bound to be robbers. They are bound to be dangers lurking in the shadows. They are bound to be temptations, and then they are bound to be unexpected things and accidents along the way. And it is so comforting to know that God sticks with us, thick and thin, up and down, in every situation, in every condition. Just like the pilgrims who went to Jerusalem in the old days, today we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are followers of Jesus Christ, so we are on the journey of following Jesus to be more and more like Him and to wait for the second return of Christ or we will, you know, die and be ushered into the presence of God. Either way, we are on a journey. And just like the saints of the past, saints of the Old Testament, we will also face temptations and struggles and, and challenges and three steps forwards and two steps back. And in every day of that situation, our desire, our hope is that God will stick with us. And it is with that understanding, with this teaching, that we will study Psalm 129 together. Let's read together Psalm 129, verses 1 to 4. That will be the first point that I will share with you, that God delivers His people. Let's read together. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plow upon my back. They make long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has outcut the courts of the wicked. And for that four verses, you can discover that a phrase is being repeated here, that greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. It is repeated for emphasis. Oftentimes in the Bible, when we see emphasis, they often repeat that, that terminology, they repeat that phrase to tell us that this is something important. It says the affliction is great. It talks about the intensity of the affliction. But the word greatly can also be translated as often. And when it is translated as often, it talks about frequency. And it says that the affliction happens at the very young age, at the very beginning, from the youth. And that talks about longevity. So that phrase reminds us of intensity, of frequency, of longevity. Meaning, the afflictions were long, it cut deep, and it happened multiple times. So the pilgrims reflected on the history of Israel, and they remembered the path to the nationhood was arduous. Israel has been invaded, besieged, oppressed by multiple foreign forces over a long period of time. The journey toward nationhood began with 430 years of slavery in Egypt. It was followed by 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, for those who are familiar with the Old Testament history. And it took them seven years to conquer Canaan. Then sadly, 
They fell into 450 years of darkness and lawlessness in the days of the judges. We studied the book of Judges, and you remember how dark it was, how low they went. And for about 400 years, Israel was ruled by 42 kings. Initially, as one nation under King Saul, King David, and King Solomon, and they ruled for about 120 years. And then, after King Solomon, the nation broke apart. They broke into northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom has 19 kings. They were all wicked idol worshippers, evil. So in the year of 722 BC, before Christ, the Assyrians came and taken over the whole northern kingdom. It perished. But the southern kingdom continued with 20 kings. Eight of them were righteous kings who followed the Lord, and about 12 of them were also idol worshippers and evil as well. Until the year 586, the Babylonians came and destroyed the southern kingdom, and the whole Israel was under captivity. You know, throughout the history, Israel has been afflicted greatly by many enemies. Mighty forces like the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians have invaded Israel and taken away the brightest as slaves. And the neighboring forces like the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Amorites, and the Midianites, and others have repeatedly attacked Israel, bringing devastation and loss of lives. You know what? With all the sad picture on the history of Israel, in verse 2, it reminds us, yet they have not prevailed against me. In verse 2, the second part. Yet they have not prevailed against me. You know, one might say that the chief accomplishment of the Jewish people has been survival. A Bible commentator puts it this way. The Jews are the longest, enduring, distinct ethnic people on the planet. They have been slandered, hated, persecuted, expelled, pursued, and murdered throughout their long existence, but they have survived intact. It's amazing. You know how bad was, were these afflictions? Now, using the metaphor of the ancient agricultural practices, which in some places they still practice that, where the plowman presses the plow deep into the ground, while oxen, usually a pair or two pairs of oxen, will pull the plow forward, breaking the ground, loosening the soil, creating trenches to be ready for seeding. And using that metaphor, the psalmist depicts the plower as the enemy warriors. He depicts the long furrows as the wounds and adversities that the nation experienced. And the field as the back of Israel. Okay, picture that. Long gashes cut into the skin and flesh. Back and forth, back and forth, up and down, systematically, horizontally, vertically, diagonally, and leaving deep cuts and messy wounds 
in the back of Israel. That's how they picture it. You know what? Yet, they have not prevailed against me. Why? Verse 4 says, The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Because the Lord is righteous. Meaning God is always doing the right thing. It means there is rightness in God. All that He is and all that He does is right. When we say the Lord is righteous, it means the Lord conforms to a standard. There are standards when He does things. Then our question is, what is a standard that He conforms to? Well, He conforms to the standard of His own word because He is the truth. It conforms to himself because he's a sovereign God. It conforms to his promises because he never lies. It conforms to his covenant because he's always delivered. And his promise and oath that he has given to his people, he always keeps his promise. Even if the other party will violate the covenant and God may bring judgment and, and He may bring discipline to that individual or that nation or that group or that community, but He is always faithful to His covenant because He is righteous. And you know what? That is the source of the encouragement of the people. That the Lord is righteous. The Lord is utterly dependable. Again and again, the Lord has delivered them out of the bondages, out of the tyranny, and out of affliction. The second part of verse 4 says, He has cut the cords of the wicked. That the cords that connect the plow and the oxen is cut off. The cord usually connect to the oxen having a yoke that put them together so that they can walk straight and in the right step, that cord is being cut, meaning it is no longer operational. Like your joint of your body, which is dislocated, it is no longer functional. God sticks with His people. The oxen are still there. The plow is still there. The plowman is still there, but it is not operational. It is not functional anymore because the Lord cut the cords of the wicked. You know, the history of Israel of suffering and deliverance was not fulfilled even though the Lord has built them up over and over again as they cry out and depend and repent before Him. But the history of suffering and deliverance of Israelites' history is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you remember in Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 5, as Isaiah 53 prophesies on the righteous servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, 
yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Ultimately, the history of suffering and deliverance is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in the sense of nationhood, but in the reconciliation with God the Father, in the forgiveness of sins, and a new life that transformed them as they live for the Lord. That is the ultimate fulfillment. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ brings ultimate deliverance from the power of sin. And this is the experience of Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Second Corinthians talks about the treasure in the jar of clay. The jar of clay is our body. Our body is fragile. It's easily broken. It's easily wounded. But there's a treasure in there. What is that treasure? That treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The indwelling of Christ through the Holy Spirit in our lives is the treasure that gives us the ability that even though we are crushed, we are afflicted but not crushed, and even though we are perplexed but not driven to despair, even though we are persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And that jar of clay, that fragile body says, always carry in the body the death of Jesus. What is that? That is the gospel, that Jesus died for me, that through his death and resurrection, he has forgiven me, he has overcome sins and death. And that gospel is in me, that gospel is in you. And it is that gospel that will sustain you and me as we walk on the pilgrimage, as we walk with Jesus, as we follow Jesus and be his disciples that will continue to remind us that God sticks with us, Jesus sticks with us, and we'll be able to have that strength and be empowered to live that disciple life, disciple maker's life for Jesus Christ. You know, I don't know how many times I have to go back to the cross of Jesus to remind myself that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And some of you, especially the middle age and older, the 50-plus individuals. Oftentimes, memories come back to you now. Now that you have done your part, now that you have made your ways, now that you have journeyed uh, hard and, and well, now that the children are on their own, we begin to have the memories of the past to flood back into yourself. And for some of the 50-plus, you wake up in the middle of the night and remember something. Something bad happened in the past. Something bad that you have done to individuals. 
someone that you should go and say, I'm sorry, but that person is not there anymore. Some bad things that you have done, but that cannot be reverted anymore. And you wonder, how do you deal with that? As you walk that journey, the treasure in the jars of clay will bring you back to the cross of Jesus and experience the forgiveness of the Lord and gives you peace and experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And for our English congregations, we are seeing more and more people who are entering into parenthood for the first time. It's a wonderful experience. But even as you enter into the experience, you remember harsh words that you have said to your parents. That advisors, they try to remind you and try to teach you, you were like, nah, it wouldn't happen. Now you're like, oh, now I understand. Now I know. And for some of you, maybe that forgiveness needs to be extended to whoever that needs that forgiveness or that apologies. I don't know how many times in a time of tiredness and exhaustions and panic and fears and wondering which step should I take and what decisions should I make and whatever we have now, is it the best situation for our church and for my family, for myself? And, and, and being dragged down in emotions and, and into despair. You don't know how many times I have come back to worship Jesus. Just honor Him and worship God. Singing praises to Him. Reading Psalms. Pray before Him would have lifted my spirit and give me the courage to, to press on on that pilgrimage. You don't know how often I have recited that common verse in the Bible that rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, over and over and over and over again. And usually that is the first thought that comes to my mind when I open my eyes every day because I want to make it my spiritual discipline. It's so hard. It's so hard to rejoice always. To always have hope in Jesus Christ. It's so hard to practice. And to, to give thanks in everything, especially when you felt wronged in a, in a wrong way, when you, when you take up blames for other people, when you are falsely excused, to give thanks for that, you know how hard it is? Man, that was hard. But you know how many times I go back to the Bible, keep reciting that phrase and say, God help me, God help me. God teach me. God help me to let go. God help me to forgive. God help me to, to take it up and say, it's okay because Jesus is with me, because God sticks with me. You don't know how many times I have prayed before God and say, God, be with me. God, help me to experience you over and over and over again until I can fall asleep. I don't know if that's the experience that you have walked with Jesus. But you know, life, life is tough. Pastors, members, everybody, life is tough. At any given moment, some of you, if not most of you, if not all of you, will be going through difficulties, even right now, at this moment. You look at me, I look at you, but I can't read your mind. 
But if I have a video, if I have the God of eyes, the eyes of God where I can see right through you and penetrate right into your DNA, into the, the brain cells, I'm pretty sure everybody goes to tough times. Diff- different intensity, different nature, but everybody struggles with something. And since the fall of Adam and Eve, you know, everybody labors. Men labor and sweat to get food. And women with childbearing experience labor too. And even the creation was cursed. You know, nothing works well, nothing works for us. Individual suffers, family suffers, even church suffers too. It is the treasure, the gospel that is in our fragile life that empowers us to press on with faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you have that treasure in your heart, you know, suffering matures you. Because you can go through that with that treasure in the clay, body of clay, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is a powerful message today from the psalm, that God delivers His people. He sticks with His people. But secondly, He moves on to, reminds us that God judges the enemies, verses 5 to 8. I want to invite you to read together verses 5 to 8. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops with wither before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. You know, as we look at God's judgment against the enemies, verse 5 reminds us that God, they will be disgraced for the enemies. Verse 5 says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. You know, every time the Bible mentioned about Zion, especially in the Old Testament, it denotes the presence of God among His people because Zion is where the temple is. It is the center of worship. And since this is the center of worship, God's covenant and God's blessing is also bountiful as well. So it reminds us of God's presence. It reminds us of God's covenant and God's blessing. But it also reminds us of God's kingdom. Because this is a place where God rules. This is a place where God's presence, God's will is to be respected, is to be carried out. So whenever Zion is being mentioned, it is rich in content, it is rich in meaning. And the enemies who hate Zion, as verse 5 says, those who hate Zion, who are they? They are the people who have no regard for God and His promises. And you know what? Verse 5 reminds us that those who hate Zion will be put to shame and turned backward. Meaning, God will humiliate them by pushing them back. Because the court is cut and they are no longer functional, even though they try to bring oppression over and over again to the people of God. The whole operation disintegrates. 
and they left in shame and defeat. Just like Psalm 6, verses 9 to 10. He says, The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Just like that. The same deprecation, the same curse, the same judgment is repeated many times in the Psalms. Not only they were disgraced, but secondly, verses 6 to 8, their efforts will be futile. Now, as we come to verses 6 to 8, the psalmist employ another, another metaphor. You see, in Israel, most houses will have flat roof so that the family can go out to enjoy some breeze after sundown. sundown. It was such a hot place in Israel. And Israel is also a windy place with lots of sand. So some of, some of it gets blown up to the roof and gathered in a corner. And when the moisture sets in, it causes seeds to sprout out. But, but the soil is usually so shallow that the grass withers under the hot noonday sun. It is in that picture, it is in that picture, in that metaphor, that he is reminding us that the enemy's efforts will be futile. That because it is so insignificant that there is no need for anyone to use a sickle to, to reap them. There's no harvesting. What do, you, what do you mean by harvesting? It's nothing there. You'll be gone by noonday. And because of that, there is no need to bind them together into a sheep as if you have a big harvest and all the stocks get together, you bind them, you know, row after row after row and be collected for harvesting, right? No, nothing like that. Far from it. It is so insignificant, so futile that it is negligible. And you know what? And because of that, the passerby would never say, well, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord as if you have a big harvest. It's nothing there. There's no blessing. There's no congratulations because nothing is really being shown there. You know, this is a comical expression of the futile efforts by the wicked who inflicts pain on Israel because it is not even worth mentioning. That's what the psalmist is saying. They will be disgraced. Their efforts will be futile. It is not even worth mentioning. There's nothing there. And that brings us to the message today. What is that message? To me, the message is the righteous God will stick with us until our journey is done. The righteous God will stick with us until our journey is done, until the pilgrimage is finished, until our discipleship pathway is done, and He will stick with us. He is the Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And remember in, in John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I will always be with them. I will stick with them. 
No one can snatch them away from my hand. And even in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, you remember that behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God sticks with us. What kind of a God is He? A distant God? Just a powerful God? A force? It's more than that. He's a personal God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, it says, Since then we have a great priest, great high priest, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. If he fell, he will not be able to die in substitution of us on our behalf. If he sinned, if he fell in temptation, he'll be disqualified. But the Bible says he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And because of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So draw near to God. Draw near to God because He understands. He's been through that. Been there, done that, but never sinned. And He is our great high priest that we can come before Him. You know, today as I look at the psalm, I really struggle with the psalm. <laughs> you know, psalm is so hard to preach. Because it is not just the expounding and exegesis. That's the easy part. It is, what do you mean by that? How, how does it show? Where does it show? How do I live? That's a hard part. I wrestle with that for a long time. And I wonder, how can I talk to you in applications? I think today, I just want to pour my heart to you. I want to talk to every one of you individually. Because as I look at our journey of faith, as I look at our pilgrimage, as a church, as a community, my fear, my concern, is that we are not walking with Jesus. Let me explain. I know you'll be offended. I know you're not very happy to hear things like that. What do you mean by that? I've been Christian for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I've been active. I'm a deacon, I'm an officer, I'm a Sunday school teacher, I'm a smoke leader. You know, I've done all this stuff. What do you mean by that? My fear for our church and for us as fellow disciples of Jesus Christ is that we don't know how to walk with Jesus, but we do know how to work for Jesus. We are good at working for Jesus. We are good at filling the spots. We are good at creating new works. We are good at meeting the needs. And many of us are willing to step up and say, count me in. I'll fill the gap, you know. And that's wonderful. That's great. But we don't know how to walk with Jesus. We enjoy listening to sermons and YouTubes and our favorite speakers, our favorite preachers, and we read their books, you know, we are blessed by them. They are wonderful people. God used them mightily. But it's always somebody else's. It's always somebody else reading the Bible for you. It's always somebody else praying for you. 
it's always somebody else overseeing, reminding you about your relationship with God. It's always somebody else. So that when we come together, we can quote famous authors and good speakers and good YouTube, and, and, and we were blessed by that, but we don't often have a personal journey with Jesus Christ. And that's my fear. That we have stories to tell about the ministry, the effectiveness of the ministry, the excitement of the ministry, you know, the, the, the passion for that works, the passion for the groups there. Those are wonderful. But we don't often share about how, when was the last time I encountered the presence of God? When was the last time the Word of God spoke to me? When was the last time the Holy Spirit reminded me of something? It's like blank for many people. It's blank. And that's my fear. That as a group, as a community, we are activists, but we don't walk with Jesus personally. And that spirituality is always borrowed, borrowed from the pastors, borrowed from the, the popular writers, Christian writers, borrowed from the popular and effective and powerful preachers. But you don't have that because you don't walk personally with Jesus. I wonder if we divide into groups of two and two or three or four together and said, tell each other as honestly as you can about your prayer life. How would that look like? I wonder when we divide into groups of three or four and turn around and say, let's be honest. Okay? Be as honest as we can. How's your devotional life? How's your Bible reading and reflections before God? I wonder when we get together and really look at our journey with Jesus and ask us questions. You know what? Every Sunday we come back, thank God for the worship team and thank God for the great worship that we experience together week after week after week. But what about your private worship? Do you worship God except Sunday? Is Sunday is the only day to worship God? Or Sunday is the corporate worship? We worship together as a family of God. But what about your personal worship? My fear is that God is absent in most of our time schedule and timetable. God is absent. We almost like we outsource it. <laughs> we outsource it to those who are able expositors. We outsource it to those with uh, great insights about the things of God. We don't always walk with Him personally. I'm not saying that you don't love Jesus. I'm not saying that you are not genuine Christians. I'm not saying that you don't care about God. You care a lot. But the expression of your care for many of us will be, I work for God. Not, I walk with Jesus. And I think today as we look at this psalm, 
it reminds us that on the journey of pilgrimage, as we walk with Jesus, God sticks with us. But do you stick with God? And not substituting that relationship with just enough works, more works. You know, that's a church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. It's a great church. They work hard. They labor hard. They know the truth. But they lost their first love. They don't really love Jesus. They just love doing Jesus' work. They love to be in the church. They love to have a lot of activities and do things and care for people and bless people and communities and everything. Also wonderful things. But if they are not anchored in our relationship with God, you know what? If that ministry is taken away, you lose your purpose and meaning. Why do I have to stick with this church? You know, my heart, my passion for this thing is gone. It's not there anymore. I am gone too. When somehow things that you cared about is, is not working and people are, are, are leaving and they are not committed, committed to that. And you are like, what's the use of this? Let me leave too. Let me do something else. When it is not anchored in personal relationship with God, when works go well, we feel that we are spiritually strong. When works and performance are not there, we feel like we are spiritually weak. It is performance-based, not relationship-based. Relationship with Jesus. And today I want to call upon the church. You know, we've been preaching and teaching and telling and asking people to pray and asking people to pray for ongoing revival. Ultimately, it comes back to this. Do you love Jesus? But again, when I said, do you love Jesus? Naturally, like, okay, I serve more, work more, do more. <laughs> Those are good. But do you love Jesus more than anything else? That even that ministry is not given back to you. And even that pioneer works that you have started folded. That you still love Jesus. That it's okay. God is in charge. And I can still walk with Jesus. That I still follow Him. To me, that's true discipleship. To me, that's following Jesus. Everything else is icing on a cake. And today I want to call the church back to the root. Back to the root. For some of you, <laughs> I know, you heard it so many times, for some of you, pray. Pray. You don't pray. Many of you don't pray. You pray to say good morning and good night. That's about it. And when you're in crisis, you cry out, help me God. And you don't pray. And for some of you, you don't read God's word except when we come to the small groups and when you come to preaching of the worship and all that. And those are very good. They prepare well. They do their best. But you need to walk with your God. You need to have a personal and intimate relationship with your Jesus. It's not Albert Ting's Jesus. It's not Henry Liu's Jesus. It's your Jesus. And if we as pastors can really help you to walk with Jesus, I think we are doing good. Because Jesus will tell you how to respond to Him. 
Because Jesus will tell you what to do. Jesus will tell you how to commit to him. And Jesus will tell you which direction you should take for your life. He will. He will guide you. Would you come back to Jesus and have a personal relationship with God? Not for salvation that you're already in, <laughs> but to grow strong in Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, um, as a church, we want to come before you and say, God, if we have replaced our relationship with you with something else, with works, and with performance and with service, we want to confess and say, Lord, you are above all. You are above all. Lord, if we have substitute just activities in the church and ministries in the church as a form of spiritual life, replacing our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Lord, we confess before you. Because those are so attractive. We can measure them. We can see the result. And others can see it too. So it's easy for us to focus on those things. But today, we want to come before you and say, God, we just want you. We just want you. Jesus and me. Me and Jesus. Because when I open myself to you, then you will guide me and disciple me and you will tell me how to live for you as a disciple makers of Jesus Christ. So this morning, Lord, I want to pray for my congregation. I want to pray for myself. That we will go back to that same teaching which anchors our faith. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and you shall love your neighbors. Teach us to love you more than anything else. Help us to build a strong, personal walk with God. And you will tell us how to move forward with you and to do your will. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.